Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. This week's guest is Tony Whitbread, independent ecologist and until recently the chief exec of Sussex Wildlife Trust. Tony joined me to talk about rewilding, what wild means in a modern 21st century country and how it relates to other kinds of nature conservation that continue and which have gone before. We explored the various scales at which it's meaningful to work, the difference between applying in non-urban and urban areas, the obstacles which we'll face and how we can overcome them, both practically and in terms of how to communicate with the wider population. We also talked about what opportunities the pandemic response gives for recalibrating value and the opportunities for being regenerative in our activities on the planet. Tony, who's one of the best science communicators in his field, began by telling me about how he got into nature conservation and the series of talks which have been cut short by the pandemic shutdown, titled Ending the War on Nature, which bring together his insights on where we've perhaps gone astray as a society and what we need to do to reprioritise the natural world. Uh, golly, interesting question, going back into the mists of time, really. Um, yeah, I suppose I've been interested in wildlife from very early on. In fact, I think when I was at school, I had a period when I was off sick strangely and uh, i found that you know the normal kind of biology lessons weren't really doing it for me and i discovered this word ecology which way back then was a word nobody had heard of so i started getting some books and tried to understand what it all meant and realized that actually right back then when i was in my early teens it was an understanding of ecosystems and ecology that i was actually interested in so it goes right back to there and then did you did you go on to study that professionally? And then... Yeah, literally, literally that. Yeah, I, I started off by, by going to, go to college, going to Hatfield Polytechnic, actually, as it was then, and did an applied biology degree. Um, there weren't many ecology degrees then. Actually focused on ecology, and then eventually did a um, PhD on grassland ecology. So that was my, my training, as it were. And after that, I, I ended up working for the what was the Nature Conservancy Council. It's now called Natural England. Uh, and I moved up to doing general survey work and eventually doing ancient woodland work. So I've done quite a bit of work on woodland as well. After that, of course, I joined the Wildlife Trust and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> Recent history. How, um, how, have your, um, how have your ideas about conservation changed over those, um, over those years? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I really like the fact that uh, things get challenged now and then. You kind of think you understand and there's always another layer that comes in. Uh, so I, I really like that. So it, I suppose, yeah, views have shifted quite a lot. When I started in my career, I started actually doing an ancient woodland survey a very long time ago. And that was when ancient woodlands were only just thought of as ancient woodlands, about 1976. And so before that, woodlands were just woodlands, and nobody had really thought about how old they were. But that was interesting. Um, and at that point, I remember being quite shocked when somebody said, there should be a rule against planting trees, not cutting them down. Um, so, you know, that was an original challenge. I thought we should be going around planting trees everywhere, but actually managing woodland was more important, the message that was coming across. So that was an early message. Management was important. And, of course, more recently, we're thinking we're challenging that and saying, well, actually, nature should function by itself. So we should withdraw management, perhaps, in certain in certain places. So it, it all changes. You know, we started off thinking that Britain uh, is covered in trees, uh, and then a little bit later we realised that, that that's impossible, otherwise most of our species wouldn't exist. So what are, the, what are the actual patterns that we see in nature? So, yeah, conservation changes all the time. What are the uh, transmission mechanisms for those kinds of knowledge? Is it from, from the universities into, um, into, like, into policy, into the, into the management organisations? 
Interesting, yeah, it's, it's changed over time. And I was originally inspired by all sorts of, uh, of books and journals that were coming out and, and from some new people. Um, but these days, of course, it, it is much more more online. It's for stuff you can get from uh, um, from universities. And it's so easy now to get back to original research. So you can follow things through um, on web links and so on. But, so, yes, I, I actually get quite a lot just by following the right people on Twitter. It seems to work quite nicely for me. Yeah, if you screen out the noise, Twitter can be um, can be can be a great resource for um, for all, all manner of things. So, so tell me about what you're um, you're working on right now, then, Tony. Yeah, well, all sorts of things. I'm working with the with the um, with Nepa State, for example. So I'm doing some work on rewilding with their rewilding project, uh, teaching courses, hopefully teaching courses on on rewilding for smaller landowners. I say hopefully because, of course, we've got this this slight problem at the moment of not being able to talk face to face with anybody. Um, but like we're doing now, we're looking at um, kind of online ways of doing these courses. So I'm doing quite a bit with rewilding. Um, I'm doing quite a bit in all sorts of other ways. Uh, interested in you know, obviously the climate and ecological emergency, what we ought to be doing there. Um, and in my mind, a lot of these things kind of link together. Rewilding is nature functioning for itself, the kind of basis of everything that we have. And then, well, the climate and ecological emergency is what's happening when you're getting it, when we're getting it all wrong. Uh, so I'm quite interested in, in you know, how we can go forward to address the kind of emergency that we're actually in at the moment. So rewilding then, um, I came to your, um, to the first of, um, of your series of, of talks that you had planned for this year. I guess they're on, they're on hold for now, but the first one that I saw was about rewilding and I'd like to explore that a little bit in a second. But could we, um, could we take a moment just to, um, just to explore that series of talks because it had quite a provocative title and content, I think. Yes, we, we called this, called the series of talks ending the war on nature. Um, it was actually a bit serendipitous, really, because I had in my head a series of talks, uh, and when uh, Rope Tackle and Shoreham wanted me to give some talks, I just kind of gave a list and said, well, these are sort of interesting talks, Shall I do this? And they said, well, yeah, that sounds good. And then at the end of it, they said, um, well, we need a title. So I thought, and suddenly this, this title came to me, Ending the War on Nature. And when I thought about it, the series of talks I had in my mind uh, were actually about how we need to move into a different place, ending our war on nature and trying to form a much more regenerative culture rather than one that fights nature. But it all kind of came together. You know, first of all, there's rewilding, nature functioning for itself. I then gave a, a, a talk on um, a, you know, what, are, what have plants ever done for us? So, you know, how important are plants in life? And actually looking at the big context, of course, they're fundamentally important. Another talk I give is, is, is um, um, there's no wealth but life, which actually questions the way we do economics. You know, we don't value the right things. And if we don't value the right things, then things go wrong. If you don't value nature, it's no surprise when we lose it. So that's, you know, so we, we need to kind of end the war on nature. We need to, need to value, the, um, value nature higher and we need to restore nature, which is the kind of rewilding principle. So it does kind of hang together. So that was the idea of these talks. We were going to give these three or four talks, because there's marine conservation within there as well, um, being given by one of my colleagues. And then at the end of it, bring that together in a kind of uh, discussion session. But, well, how can we move forward now? How can we actually take what we've learned? Um, we're at a stage now in human evolution where we simply can't carry on doing what we've done in the industrial age. We're running out of planet. We need to think again. And that was the kind of background of these talks. Who was the we that these were um, that you that you were, that you were 
describing there is it was it the concerned individuals was it organizations government target, target audience that we're talking to yeah interesting i that's interesting because i don't i often don't really, really think about who i'm talking to which is i'm always told off because that's the wrong thing to do isn't it you're supposed to think about your audience <laughs> but uh, um yeah i suppose it's the the interested um individual uh, the interested and maybe wanting to be informed sort of individual those those people who, who want to know a bit more maybe challenge maybe think forward but it, it is the kind of general population i suppose but also um the organizations and bodies and authorities as well um i think people that were coming to my talk were from a range of organizations not just there as individuals and thinking about well there are the point about a lot of this is there are policy implications. It's not just about what we can do as individuals. That's important, but actually that's a bit of the, of the iceberg. We really need to make some pretty deep policy changes in order to live sustainably in the future. So I think actually a lot of these talks were, were aimed at the policy level as much as an individual level. I'm experiencing it, experiencing it in all kinds of different ways. You start, you come across, you have conversations with people in organisations who are now like, well, we can't just, I can't distinguish between what my kids think, what um, what my what my family think um, from what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, what I'm doing in my nine to five in my day job, whether whether I work for a commercial organisation, you know, in a, for a government organisation, a school, what have you. Yeah, in, interesting because I think I think that's true, and there's. We are, sometimes there's an idea that we're looking for leaders, people who are going to take us out of all this and look at the government and so on. It doesn't work like that. Most things are actually done from the bottom upwards. It's actually the kind of great movement of uh, people, you know, performing a view and then governments follow. So it may not seem like much just to talking to ind individuals and then gradually changing their minds. But actually, I think that's the most fundamental and most important thing to do because when you get a kind of weight of opinion a weight of uh, a view going forward then governments follow and they end up having to make, make changes that are necessary so i don't think this idea of looking for great leaders to take us forward ever does work really it's actually the kind of movement of the time that's the key thing yeah absolutely there's yeah. so these the slow painstaking work of the of the pioneers and the campaigners on the ground shifts that the phrase is the Overton window, like the, the limits of the possible for, um, for for policy, so that government feels freer to act in, or the government departments feel freer to act in um, in 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 certain ways, which which move towards those goals. I guess the time scale is now what's um, what's pressing for everybody, and what makes this kind of unprecedented in um, in terms of um, in in terms of the uh, 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 almost a race now for policy to meet the scale of the. Um, the scale of the challenge i think i would like to bracket that if i may because i think there's some stuff that we might be able to talk about that productively in, in terms of you know you know the opportunities and um and and potential uh, frictions for um for the for these kinds of things which are created by the um the current situation with corona maybe if we could just come back to that in um in a little while once we've explored in a little bit more detail the um the um the specifics of rewilding yeah, if we may please yeah, well, rewilding. What is rewilding? Which is a reasonable question, and I kind of go through this in my talk when I when I talk uh, when I, I teach courses on rewilding. Um, actually, I think what's happening now is people are really fascinated, really interested, inspired by the whole idea of rewilding, and so it's got to become practical. It's got to be something that you can actually do at various levels. So, what's rewilding? Fairly good question. And at the basic level, rewilding is the restoration of, e of ecological processes. Bring back natural processes that's great that's a good starting point 
And the next question, of course, is, well, what do you mean by natural processes? Now, quite often people think uh, the obvious, you know, if you if you leave your garden alone, it gradually turns into a woodland, doesn't it? I mean, it, it goes through what ecologists call succession. So you start off with small, small plants, then you get bigger plants, you end up with some scrub and then maybe a thicket, and then eventually a closed canopy forest forms in a couple of hundred years. And sometimes people think, well, that's the end then, that, that's rewilding. Well, it's not. That's less than half the story. Because um, mo more than half of our native species don't live in bent forest. Um, they would be wiped out if it was just dense forest. The idea that rewilding is all about forming dense forest is fundamentally flawed and actually quite ecologically damaging. But when you think about ecological processes, yes, succession is one. The formation of dense forest is one of those processes, uh, and that's very important. But working in the opposite direction is a process called natural disturbance. So it's like this dynamic going on between these two great forces in nature, trees trying to grow to form forests and all forms of disturbance are trying to form gaps in forests. And it's that interplay, the gaps being formed, the dense forest being formed, at all sorts of kind of levels and complexities, that's what creates diversity in nature. But simple answers are always wrong. It's always this complexity that's, that's so important. So that's the basis of, uh, of rewilding. It's this interplay between succession on one hand natural disturbance on the other and therefore how do you get that into place now the idea of tree planting is great um, if you look around Britain we are one of the least well wooded countries in Europe so increasing the amount of woodland is great but we have to be fairly careful as well um, because actually you can cause an awful lot of damage if you plant trees in the wrong place and actually is tree planting rewilding in some cases it might be but the thing that's missing may be trees and maybe succession won't happen all by itself. The tree planting might be a good idea. But quite often what's actually missing is disturbance. How do you create the disturbance? And that's where the big animals come in. That's where the kind of horned cows and the, um, oh, I don't know, beavers in particular, for example, are a classic example of, of natural disturbance. Wild boar or, or Tamworth pigs in, in standing in for wild boar, they also create disturbance. And that's what creates this um, patches of uh, openness within a kind of closed canopy forest or within what would otherwise be a closed canopy forest. How do we think about applying that? What what scale are we are we talking about for this to be um, for this to be useful? Interesting, yeah, because you can apply this at multiple scales. Well, you have to apply it at multiple scales and and really think about well, what does it mean at different scales? Because you, you, we can never get to. We don't even know what truly wild is. We can't even think when last anywhere was truly wild and what does that mean anyway. So thinking more about, well, what are these natural processes we need to build, bring back? If you think about the processes, how big an area do you need for that process? Okay, so let's start at the top. Um, the biggest thing we need to do if we want wild is to bring back top predators because the top predators, things like the lynx and the wolf and the bear, they influence the big herbivores. Um, now, to bring back predators, you probably need a, a site about the size of England, certainly the size of the southeast of England anyway. So that's obviously too big. You're not, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. Um, so you have to think about what do you do instead. Going down a bit, you can think about, well, a slightly smaller area. How do you have wild herds of native grazers? Um, well, that's quite difficult. Some of our native grazers are extinct. Uh, things like the wild aurochs and the tarpan horse have gone extinct. 
uh, some of them never made it to this country anyway. And therefore, they think, well, maybe we need domestic proxies of wild animals. And that, that's when it starts to become meaningful. If you're using domestic proxies, you can treat them in a semi-wild way. You treat an ordinary cow as though it was wild. We have a deer running through the countryside anyway. You can treat them as though they're wild. They generally are. You can use Tamworth pigs instead of wild boar. Now, you can start to bring them down into a smaller scale. It's smaller again, and you're starting to have to manage those an those animals a bit more in order to get that patchwork dynamics. So I can't really say this is the size you need for rewilding because it's almost it's, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an answer you can't grasp. You really have to think about, well, what scale can we have in order to fit in a process, in a natural process? And you can get right down to a much smaller scale. And, you know, we talk about this quite often when it comes to a, your own garden. How do you rewild your garden? Well, a lot of that is actually about an attitude. Instead of managing it as the first kind of thing in your head, well, think about, well, how would natural processes work on the small scale of my garden? How do I get this interplay between things trying to grow on the one hand and disturbance trying to happen on the other? How do you mess about with your garden in that sort of way um, and allow it to develop rather than determine the answer? When we're doing conservation management, the traditional form of management, we have to deliver an output. Quite often there's a rare species, an unusual habitat. If we didn't manage it, it would disappear. So there is an output and that's quite legitimate. Rewilding is different. Rewilding is building a system. You build a system, you let it run its own course, and then you try to, what comes out of it is an emergent property. It's something that just happens. And you have to appreciate that for what it is. But you're not determining the output. You can actually apply that to your own garden to some extent. You know, don't determine where everything's going to be. Just kind of influence the natural processes and see what happens. That's the kind of background I was thinking about anyway. So to what extent do human um, interventions which crisscross the landscape, so I'm thinking of garden walls and fences, roads, um, how, do the th th how does our footprint in this um, landscape, which we'd like to make wild, um, affect the um the extent to which the um the wildness can um can can develop mm. so it's it's fundamentally important as, as, I, as i'm sure you know we all probably realize is the way the landscape is being carved up by the uh, things that we put in the way like our own gardens our agriculture our, our roads and, and development i mean that's obviously forming barriers to all sorts of things happening forms barriers obviously to things moving around but it forms barriers to the way natural process is working processes work so okay so that's the negative but you can, you can also treat it as a kind of positive um if you're doing a bit of rewilding in your own garden you may think well that's a bit small and insignificant but if you're working as part of a much wider ecological network you look outside your own garden or your own property or your own small holding maybe working with others maybe getting an idea about what's happening next door and maybe forming cluster farms or groups of people with similar ideas see how you can make those ecological corridors you can start to link these things up again in various degrees of maybe rewilding or maybe more traditional conservation management. Actually, I think this is, as you probably guess, it is fundamentally important. It's not just about doing things on small patches. That's important. You've got to see how those patches link up. So the idea of a nature recovery network or an ecological network, I think, is a really valuable one that really helps us think about how we restore the landscape. Nature recovery network. So I can picture um, 
uh, pollinators, invertebrates moving certain amount of distance between different um, between different uh, wild gardens, um, meadows um, <clears throat> on roadside verges, so on and so forth. But what is the how should we think about connectivity and 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 mobility of the creatures that we want to to join up? Like how how dense do things need to get? Is it literally the case that every intervention has some meaning and and things will travel quite far to um, to take advantage of the um, of these spaces which we're which we're creating? Or is there a critical mass which we need to start a campaign for? Right, interesting. It's, 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 as you probably guess, it's, it's multi-scaled. It, it depends kind of what you're talking about as to, as to what sort of answer we're likely to end up with. Starting point, actually, is probably our, our, um, our rivers and streams, our wetlands. And obviously, they need to link up. Uh, a, a river needs to run right the way down to the sea, obviously. So how things link up in terms of, of wetlands, streams and rivers is a, is a pretty good starting point. Making those all link up, all link together, and function as naturally as possible, given the constraints, that's a good starting point. If you think about it in another sort of way, what does an ecological net? What, what what's being linked up? Quite often, it, it could be at an incredibly small scale. Uh, to an invertebrate, um, a linked-up landscape is very small. To a swallow, a linked-up landscape is the gap between here and South Africa. So actually, you can think on multiple sorts of scales, and I think that's quite um, it's quite enlightening, really, because it means you can intervene at all sorts of scales, and you can try to put things together at all sorts of scales. We tend to think fairly simplistically of things all joining up, which is helpful. You know, that's that's useful to have, but maybe we could think about um, how permeable the landscape is to all sorts of different wildlife. So for a swallow, it's got to be fairly permeable to be able to get from one hemisphere to another. Um, other 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 species like a tadpole in a stream, <laughs> obviously that uh, things have to be linked up on a very small scale. Um, the same with some of these invertebrates as well. Uh, some invertebrates colonise far better than others. Our woodland butterflies are fairly poor at colonising, whereas things like a um, oh, a red admiral butterfly colonises over reasonable distances. So it works at multiple scales, and I think this is the point about rewilding. You're not making something simple. You're making something complex. The more complex it is, the more difficult it is to understand, probably the better it is. It works at multiple scales. So we've talked there about um, about birds and, and invertebrates. When we go further up the um, up the chain that you um, that you mentioned, when we start getting to um, to four legged creatures um, of various sizes, how um, how do these um, uh, how do these insights apply apply there? Pigs roaming around the suburbs? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of ways of looking at it. One way is to think, well, okay, so we want to rewild an area, which means that uh, we're trying to have something like um, something that behaves like a wild herbivore. Okay, so let's think about a domestic cow that we're trying to treat in a semi-wild way. Now, to, to get that uh, working um, throughout the year, you need to be able to have a fairly natural herd on the site all through the year. Now that needs a big site. If you're going to get smaller than that, then you may have to have a fairly naturally functioning herd, but you may have to move animals on and off in order to get the right sort of, whatever right means, the right sort of, of density. In another situation, you may have things like, uh, like roe deer, which move through the landscape anyway. And what you could be doing is making um, ecological corridors so they can actually move through fairly urban areas and just just haven't have an impact on wherever they go going to other countries they're finding that even top 
predators are moving through suburban areas much more than they realise. I think there was a case in South Africa where there was a, a, a town that was being that had a, a rogue leopard in the town. So they decided to catch the rogue leopard. Um, I think they caught five leopards and none of them was the right one. <laughs> they didn't realise that there were leopards going through the town all the time. And it was only one that was causing a problem. So, and I think the same happens in, in, in Europe when it comes to things like links, which are moving through suburban areas without us even realising. So it shouldn't be too be much beyond the bounds of possibility to actually make ecological corridors go through even fairly suburban areas. This does raise an important question, though, I guess, which is about um, how closely do the outcomes that um, that we might hope for from an ecological perspective from um, from rewilding how how closely do they map onto what human expectations are of the natural world would we be getting what we expected or do we have to accommodate ourselves to something quite different than than maybe the popular consciousness would would, would indicate you know roe deer roe deer are lovely but many of the, many of them can um can i i would imagine in a in a grassy area or what have you if they're not managed could um could 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 trample and destroy um destroy uh uh, a, a green space that, that may not be the greatest example but no, no it's a good example i mean expectations uh, of, of local people is, is is a key thing and actually part of the process i suppose of what we could call rewilding is um our own expectations and being um changing our expectations so they're more open to what might happen uh, Sometimes we have a fairly limited view on what we think ought to happen in a particular circumstance. You know, if we have a nature reserve when we have a certain expectation of what should be there. Um, with rewilding, we probably need to open those outputs up a lot more in our mind. What's in my mind, of course, is, is messiness. People sometimes don't like messiness. That's probably more important than some of the other things that we, we talk about. They're more the other things are a little bit more um, theoretical. You know, are we going to get wolves here? Are we going to be able to um, put up with them or not? I don't know. Uh, it's probably a problem that we're not going to have for a decade. Whereas actually rewilding does other things as well, which people may not always be ready for. And the thing we often notice is whether people like fuzzy edges, messy edges, things merging into each other. But it's actually um, it's that sort of thing. The idea of, um, of weeds as well. One of the problems that we've had with some of our rewilding projects is that uh, neighbours have seen species growing which they think of as weeds and therefore it's not being looked after properly. Um, so something's gone wrong. It's a kind of chain of thinking. Whereas actually what we need to understand is that they're not just weeds, they're wildflowers. You know, they come in a certain set of circumstances and they may disappear later. So just see what happens. I think that's the biggest thing is is managing our own expectations so we can actually be more open-ended about what actually um can happen have there are there are there good examples of um of of ways of changing those expectations of helping people to see things differently yes and i think it's ways of uh, changing on both sides because it's perfectly reasonable for people to have concerns when they see changes happening so it's not just a matter of a uh, of Kind of arguing with them. Uh, I think a good example is perhaps a ragwort, um, a poisonous plant which uh, has been known to kill horses, for example, so it's reasonable to be concerned about it. And what tends to happen in rewilding areas, because of natural disturbance, you get ground disturbance, which is sometimes ideal for ragwort to get going. So they have, have had ragwort growing um, in rewilding projects, which of course 
upsets people in the, around the area. Um, okay, so let's look at that again. If you look at how ragwort colonizes, it actually doesn't colonize anywhere near as fast, far as people think. So it's not going to get out of the area where it is. Um, it also is actually one of the more valuable nectar sources for um, various insects. Also, it goes through a stage as well. So if a rewilding project goes through its transition, um, you tend not to get dominant things for very long. Something then comes along and takes over afterwards. The, yeah, ragwort is an issue, and you need to think about, well, is this going to affect my neighbours? But if it doesn't, then maybe it's just a stage that the whole process is going through. It's not something you need to fight. Now, recognising that ragwort can colonise a certain distance, what some people have done in some rewilding project, is simply mow the edge so it can't colonise outside of the rewilding project. So therefore, you're working with your neighbours. You've got to recognise good, got to respect the concern they have, work with your neighbours. But actually, it doesn't mean going with a spray and wipe out every last plant of, uh, of ragwort. That's just one example. I and mean, we've had same, the similar concerns with creeping thistle, which is another thing that people are, are concerned about. Um, again, we sometimes see a burst of creeping thistle, which seems to take over areas. People worry it's going to be the end of the world. Years later, later it seems to disappear. So some of these perceptions we have to work with. It's a kind of educating other people's perception but also actually respecting their view and seeing how you can work with it in order to get to an outcome that everyone's going to be happy with. What role does the experience of um, nature, like helping people to connect with um, with um, natural, connect with and understand natural processes, what role does that play in, um, in helping maybe reach um, sections of society which aren't yet, kind of turned on to um, to the benefits of rewilding of, um, of wilder nature mm, yeah interesting I mean, there's there's all sorts of ways of answering that I mean the thing about rewilding um, versus traditional conservation with traditional conservation you have an output you have a set of uh, special characteristics that you're trying to look after therefore you've got something to interpret you can show people what's in this nature reserve and therefore what they can see and that, that's good that's that's interesting um, the rewilding is different, and that's the power to be surprised. Uh, just going through an area, or a semi-wild area, not knowing what you're going to find, uh, and then being surprised when you do find it, anything. Well, actually, that attitude can be applied at any scale. Yes, you may be walking through, I don't know, a wild area in Europe and be surprised when you, you know, chance upon a, a wolf or a lynx or something. That would be a surprise. But actually, if you're in a, in a suburban garden, and you see a butterfly you haven't seen before, or, or you find a bird's nest you didn't realise was there. That's, that's also a rewilding type experience as well. That's something you didn't know you were going to get. Um, so that's that's quite an important attitude. It's Nature is the non-human. That's more or less how it's defined. So if you control nature, you're starting to make it human. So you're stopping it being nature. <laughs> so it's, get, it's getting this across, that, that na nature is the non-human. It's vitally important to our very existence, um, but being under control, under our control, is not the entire story. Uh, appreciating it for itself, being prepared to be surprised, being prepared to be maybe frightened, doesn't matter, but being pre prepared for something that you didn't know you were going to get. There's something particularly European, I think, about the, um, the the leap there that needs to be made. I remember hiking around the uh, the redwood forest in uh, California, and um, as I was in the car park getting ready to set off, I was 
talking to one of the park rangers who was uh, warning people that, um, that mountain lions had been um, had been spotted um, in the park and indeed had attacked um, had attacked one of the um, one of the hikers. He said something quite interesting, which was that overwhelmingly in American national parks, it's Europeans who um, who tend to um, who tend to suffer uh, run-ins with um, with. Um, with wild animals because he's, his his take was that um, in America there's still a degree of awareness of the wildness beyond the beyond the city that there are genuinely wild spaces which which we don't have anymore in um, in in Europe. Yeah, now, we, I think I think that's right, and we 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 expect nature to be fairly um, fairly tame, you know, fairly. Um, yeah, predictable, nice backdrop, a pretty picture, the sort of thing we like to go and see. Um, it shouldn't be challenging. Um, you, you, you'd asked earlier about how we can make it more interesting to a wider group group of people. Well, maybe that challenging aspect is something that would draw in more people. Now, we have a lot of people who go out there for their adrenaline boosts doing all sorts of sports. Um, actually, if, if and, and nature may seem a little bit tame to a lot of those people, but if it's a bit more exciting... At least in perception, if even if not in reality, that might draw in more people and make it more exciting, more interesting, more unpredictable, more more something you can learn from. Might draw in more people. Is there um, a a different? Um, are there different sets of challenges for um, or different ways of thinking about? I mean, it, thinking about rewilding as it relates to um, areas beyond the city and and within our our towns and cities. I mean, in some sense, it's quite obviously the case that yes, there'll be there'll be different, but you've also got different stakeholders haven't you in um i'm guessing in agricultural areas you've got a much smaller group of um of, of vested interests than the um than the huge than the huge array of um of varied interest that you've got in um in cities how does that frame the challenge in different ways well yes it does frame the challenge in all sorts of different ways and uh, actually some of the um potentials may be very different um think of rewilding you may think about wild areas out in the countryside um, as the easiest place to start i'm not sure that's always the case because if you think about um uh, think about some of the valued habitat that we have in the countryside at the moment often they are well nearly always they are the product of the way they've been managed for hundreds of years they're a cultural landscape and taking the risk of rewilding it could actually risk losing quite a lot so Actually, we're looking at um, a landscape where the remaining interest is the product of management. That doesn't mean it should be like that forever, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't consider how to restore natural processes. Actually, it could limit you a bit more. If you go to, if you imagine, on the other hand, um, an urban area, maybe a piece of industrial dereliction, uh, where nothing much has happened in terms of, uh, of, of um, conservation, the book is much more open. Um, it's much more open in all sorts of ways. You know, nature is probably rearing its own head quite a bit, uh, starting to colonise in its own sort of way. Uh, it may invo- involve a range of species that are different, You know, maybe a few non-native species as well. Maybe in those circumstances we can be a lot more flexible about how nature evolves you know, within an urban area. So different, there are differences. Um, you could also say that some of those differences are used as, used as excuses. Um, we do it this way because we've always done it this way and it's the only right way to do it. Um, can restrict you rather than throwing the book open again and thinking again, well, do we really need to do things this way? Why are we cutting up on this regime? You know, is it really the case that if we carry on traditional management, we'll get the sort of species we think we're going to get? 
So it's going back right to the beginning of our, our discussion. Challenge to conservation all the time, I think, is really, really good. You know, challenge your views, challenge whether you really have to go in a particular way. Um, so I think, yes, the stakeholders are different, the output are different, uh, sort of circumstances are different. But I think every time it's worth challenging, it's worth, you know, thinking again, can we go back to a different sort of approach? So, so just to extend that then, as we're um, looking at um, an, an increasingly kind of powerful and assertive um, set of policies around green infrastructure, nature-based solutions, biophilic design, what is your sense that there's enough um, enough wildness in the um, in the ambition um, of these different policies as they stand at the moment? Gosh, is there enough wildness in the ambition? I suppose it depends who you talk to. I mean, some some um, sectors have got pretty high ambitions. I'm thinking of people like Rewilding Britain or even the, the uh, older conservation organisations like the Wildlife Trust, RSPB and so on. They actually do have pretty high ambitions and they have had for a long time. Um, achieving some of that is, is quite good. Um, however, when I think in terms of government policy or government ambitions, I'm not sure. It's an interesting stage because, you know, five or ten years ago, I'd have said definitely not. Uh, they were you know, None of the language was in anywhere near the right sort of area. Uh, a lot of it was either greenwash or categorised in small areas. If you read some of the stuff that's coming out now, it sounds a lot better. Um, I'm still worried that it could be lip service, saying the right sort of thing, whereas actually when you get down to what's on the ground, is anything really going to change? Uh, I'm not sure because discussions often end up in the it's all in the too hard to do box and it becomes an excuse to not do anything now I think what's changing now um, climate and ecological emergency we've literally got what a decade to kind of get things onto a different footing so we haven't got the luxury of messing about for much longer we do have to make fundamental changes and start to rebuild rebuild our ecology so having policies which sound good but don't actually happen in practice isn't going to cut it any longer. We're going to have to make some proper changes. What would um, a, um, a, an urban planning um, policy framework look like that, um, that embraced rewilding? Um, to um, to what kinds of things would we start to see written into local planning frameworks? Mm, interesting. I, to some extent, some of the words are already there. Um, the idea of net net biodiversity gain. You know, proper biodiversity gain from any sort of development that, that's put forward. We have to start from the perspective that we've lost too much. You know, trying to conserve, trying and usually failing to conserve what's left is no longer enough. We are going to have to put back, not just take less. So coming from the perspective of net biodiversity gain is quite a good approach. Um, and then you define what net biodiversity gain actually is. What's a net gain? What are we actually going to get that's more? So that opens up all sorts of channels for... Well, where are the ecological networks? Where are the things you can actually do? What are the outputs we're aiming for? That all sounds quite good. But that's actually been around for quite a long time. In one way or another, you can see words like that in most of our local plans going back for a long time. So I think actually it's not just about the words. It's about taking them actually seriously and showing some proper results. So we get things like net biodiversity gain being quoted in policy making and uh, it comes up time and time again. Whenever I, nearly always, when I actually see actual plans on the ground, often there are a list of excuses as to why you didn't deliver net biodiversity gain. So that has to end. Um, 
from now on it has to be taken much more seriously. If you don't deliver net biodiversity gain, you don't get the development. If it was that serious, developers would find ways of delivering all sorts of fantastic things. You know, there are good developers out there who will deliver some good stuff um, if there's a requirement to. Um, at the moment, if if anybody can get away with not doing something, then it actually favours those people who will get away with not doing it. So it has to be much more serious. Net biodiversity gain is not just an option. It's not just something you can consider and then maybe because it's all too difficult you don't do. It's an actual requirement. You don't deliver that, you don't get your development. Um, let's see what happens. So, so we're waiting, waiting to see whether enforcement of the existing policy is going to drive, um, is going to drive some of these interventions. Is there, is there a, um, is there a, um, a landscape scale, um, um, approach to, um, to at least possible, possible rewilding, would you say, embedded in the, um, in the, um, environmental net gain stipulations? Possibly, yeah. Possibly. It, it could be something. I mean, this idea of a nature recovery network. Um, forming a backbone to how net biodiversity gain is delivered um, um, could be a, a frame thinking about how that can actually work. So any one development um, may be providing a certain amount of, of gain, but actually it's for the authorities, the uh, local authorities, for example, to actually say, well, how does that work in terms of interconnected network um, we haven't really got that yet, but I've, you have to be fair. I mean, a lot of local authorities are very much thinking along those lines. Um, but, so, but at the moment, it's all too optional. Yeah, we can try and often it's not delivered. Um, but I think that the, the hooks are kind of there, but I think it has to be a lot more formal, a lot more expected, not something that, that's kind of considered. So that's that's in there to some extent. Um, I also move, move on a little bit because... Doing things by, we say, forcing people through policy and planning is one way of doing it. But actually, I think the biggest gains are going to be going to be coming from providing realistic options for people to simply consider in the way they manage their land. Not forcing people at all, but providing a menu of options which are attractive and worthwhile doing. So this is about normal land management, farming, forestry, those sorts of things, and having the right sort of financial packages. So that landowners can consider doing things which involve maybe rewilding or maybe other forms of nature conservation. Not something forced upon them, but something which is actually worthwhile doing, they're interested in doing, they want to do, and it's financially possible for them to do it. And this is where um, an exemplar such as the um, the NEP estate that you've been um, that you've been working with is um, is wonderful because it can really help to um, you know provide a concrete example of the ways in which these benefits can start to take off. Can you can you take tell us a little bit about the NEP estate for those few people who who haven't heard of it? By Certainly, yes. I mean, the NEP estate is a three and a half thousand acre um, estate in the middle of Sussex, um, owned by uh, Charlie Burrell. And I think the key thing with the, one of the key things with the NEP estate is that it wasn't led by a conservation organisation. It was led by a landowner. And a lot of the really good um, rewilding projects out there are being led by landowners. It's not something that us greenies come along and force people to do. It's actually something which is looking like a reasonable option for good landowners to at least consider. So that's important. So in the middle of Sussex, three and a half thousand acres of uh, rewilded land started about 20 years ago, and he started off with this whole principle about succession um, going in one direction and then natural disturbance in the other. So how do you need to get the natural disturbance going? Well, you need to introduce domestic properties for wild animals. 
But shall I think about that for a minute, what it actually means? So instead of the wild auroch, which is a huge extinct cow, uh, uh, we've, in, in, we've introduced the, the English longhorn cow, which by comparison is a putty cat. They're, they're, they're docile, but they do the same job. Instead of the wild boar, which again is quite savage, they're a Tamworth pig, which again, the same job as a wild boar. We have red deer, which are probably one of the few native things which are still around, so red deer are in there. Fallow deer have, have been brought in, non-native, they do a particular ecological job. Uh, roe deer go through. Uh, we also have Exmoor ponies, which have replaced the Tarpan horse. In fact, if you look at the cave paintings 40,000 years ago in France, the, the paintings of the horses then, the wild horses then, look very similar to Exmoor ponies. So they do a pretty similar job to what a, what a wild horse would have done. Now, these things are all working there together in unison, uh, working in set as semi-wild herds, behaving a bit like wild animals might have done. But from that description, you'll already notice there are things missing which you can't do on a small scale. There are no top predators, for example. So therefore, we have to try and influence those herds um, to get them to behave in a way that would have been natural if there were predators around. Now, that's difficult. There are a few thing, other things missing, which we hope to get back, like beavers. There's a, there's a license now for reintroducing beavers, and hopefully they're going to be brought back fairly soon. But that's basically how it's being pieced together. Now, increasing there, increasingly, there are other examples um, around the country, which is great. What's the um, what's their process of of learning been like? Have they had? A, did they have a plan at the start and that they've executed over a, a, you know one step at a time, or very much learning as learning through doing? I think it's learning through doing and learning through questioning and learning through getting the best thinkers that he could actually find together and basically having a jolly good argument about it. So, um, so yes, it's learning by doing. And in fact, thinking about that, the estate is naturally divided into three blocks. So almost by default, three different models of rewilding were tried um, without it being planned. Um, in the northern block, it was a fairly ordinary area of pasture land where effectively he's reduced the level of grazing pressure. Interestingly, not much has changed. In the central block, it was an area of parkland, and the parkland has been kind of wilded a bit by changing the grazing pressures, um, and it's gradually going in the rewilding direction. Um, it's changing slowly. The southern block was an area of arable land, which was taken out of production, left alone for a while, um, and then the animals were brought in. And that turns out to be the best way to do rewilding in this sort of area. If what actually happened was, before the animals came in, there was a pulse of regeneration. All the shrubs and trees got going and started to colonise the area. And then the animals were brought in. And that was just the right sort of thing to do, because it set up the kind of dynamics, which is now heading in the right direction. I think you're right. It wasn't right from the start. It wasn't a matter of, this is what we're going to deliver. Here's a plan to deliver it. Apart from at a very kind of um, uh, managerial level, but not in, in a kind of ecological level. Very much the plan was to push things off, get things going, and allow them to take their course and try to learn from what was what was actually evolving. And um, I expect that there was no that financial pressure to produce results wasn't one wasn't wasn't particularly acute. So it's been a late. It's had some space to to um, to become what it's what it's become without having to justify itself on those grounds well, in, well interesting yeah because that's the other piece of background which is which is extremely important in this context because basically this was a farm that was having trouble making any money 
it was a model farm. He was doing everything everything well, everything the way you'd expect to be done, but it was losing money year after year. Very, very rarely did he make any sort of profit, and he was having to invest all, all the time. So it was a farm that was effectively failing. So financially, um, he had to do something, and financially, this now makes an awful lot of sense. So his, his inputs have gone gone down massively. Uh, he's able to make different sorts of uses of the buildings that are there in, in, uh, instead of farming, which makes more money. He's got an eco-tourist business going on. So financially, this was a far better thing to do. Uh, and quite often we're finding that um, this is a story which seems to be unfolding in other areas. We have an agriculture which is based on high inputs and high outputs. Um, and between the two, you hope to have a margin. Now, in very, even if we're not talking about rewilding, we are finding in some areas that if you reduce the inputs, you may reduce the outputs, but you're reducing the outputs less than you're reducing the inputs. Therefore, your margin increases. And if we think about the uplands, I think some farmers are now finding that by reducing their number of sheep, um, they're actually making bigger profit. They may be reducing the number of sheep, but they're getting, you know, they're not proportionally reducing the output. So you're reducing the input, but you're also the output reduction is less. So therefore, your margin increases. Now that's an interesting picture, isn't it? You can actually reduce the intensity of management and actually make a bigger profit. And that could be a lesson that we can learn in all sorts of circumstances, not just in rewilding. Rehabilitating the soil and the um, and the landscape in um, in in places like NEP and providing a model for um, for agriculture is this something that is that could be realistically applied like sui generis across um, across UK agriculture or or do we need to consider replacing you know high input high output um, uh, agriculture as you describe with something else which may be low um, uh, low impact but high output. Hmm, there's an interesting question in there, is it, which is about the measures that you use. Now, the point about rewilding is that um, you're not setting up your measures in advance. So, therefore, how do you know whether you've got success or not? So we're wrestling with this all the time. You know, if you're not allowed to set your output, you can't therefore measure whether you're making progress towards it. So, so what do you do? And I think um, in the pure rewilding situation, you're measuring all sorts of things. You're not determining where it's going to go. You're not determining the output you're measuring biodiversity you're measuring the way the ecosystem functions and seeing where it's going now the interesting thing there i think in order to the basic question is does rewilding improve the functioning of that ecosystem okay that's fine but what does it mean and i think the biggest indication the biggest proxy measure there are the measures in the soil you can measure all sorts of biodiversity you can work out whether you, whether you're increasing or reducing but that may be um, a kind of separate thing how do you know whether you're making making it better or worse? Now, the soil seems to be the best measure, and if you look, and a lot of work is being done at the nepotate to work out what the what is the effect of rewilding on the soil. And from what we're finding, the effect on the soil is incredible. It seems to be far better, far quicker than even some of the better organic farms. Um, soils that were actually in a fairly poor state after centuries of agriculture have recovered in as little as 15 years. We've doubled the amount of organic content, for example. The, uh, the microbe balance is back to being where it probably should have been, but if we know what that is. So if we look at the soil as, as a main measure of how the ecosystem is functioning, well, that's a good measure, and that seems to be improving a lot. But I mean, taking this further, if you're 
thinking outside of the idea of rewilding, um, what sort of measures do you apply to wider agriculture? Um, then I think you're thinking about, well, what are the, the other ecosystem services that agriculture is providing? We can know about food production. We can get an idea about what, what sort of output we're getting with different sorts of agriculture when it comes to producing food. And that's fair enough. I mean, that's the basis of farming. But the importance of farming is all the other stuff it produces and nobody has kind of bothered to measure before. But does it prevent, prevent flooding? Does it reduce erosion? Does it lock up carbon? Does it build the soil? Does it actually provide a green lung for the local town, for example? All of these things are important. All of these things can be measured. Um, and they probably now should be measured because actually a farmer that's delivering all these things is being disadvantaged if, if those things are not being accounted for in the benefits that he's providing. If I if I may take this opportunity now to kind of segue into um, into the current conjuncture, is there something in our experience of the benefits of um, of thinking differently about um, about land use rewilding that allow us to kind of maybe um, step into this this space of um, of, um, of of anxiety and concern um, around coronavirus and, and, and plot, a, plot a path through it in such a way that it it offers some hope on how to proceed? Well, yes, I think so. I mean, effectively, coronavirus has, has made us press the pause button, given us a chance to actually think. Um, yeah, if this had happened uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago, then we'd probably just rushed back to, to the way we were before. Now, interestingly, I think there's been a poll recently, and um, only 9% of the people polled want to go back to normal the way it was before. A lot of people are now thinking, well, you know, was that the right way to be? Now, the improvements in air quality, pollution and so on, um, that, that's that's all great. Actually, it's been done for the wrong reasons, isn't it? So if we just, if, if, we, if the restrictions are lifted, then we could just rush straight back to the way we were. But the other part of this equation is actually, no, we've only got a decade to really sort out the bigger problems of uh, the climate and ecological emergency. So what can we learn? Uh, what can we learn from this period where we've had to press the pause button? We'll start, start with, we've learned what's important to us about, you know, about community, uh, about the, the place that we're living in, about how we work together, and the place we're living in in terms of its environment as well. We're actually appreciating, more and more people are appreciating the wildlife around them. Um, I think after this, we need a, a different sort of way of thinking. Um, the things that are of common value to all of us. At the moment, we just think about the market. How do we buy and sell things? We think about the state. How does the uh, how, do, how does the government force us? Or how do the authorities control us and force us to do things? But there are, there's actually something wider than this, and, and that is things that are of common value to all of us. The common nature and the environment is part of that. Um, you can't monetize it very easily. You can't trade, certainly can't trade much of it. Um, so it's how do you therefore relate to something which is of vital importance to everybody, which you can't simply trade or you can't simply regulate. You need to work together to manage it best. Now, this could be a message that's coming out of the coronavirus um, lockdown, is that we are starting to appreciate those things that are vitally important to all of us, but actually are outside our normal frame of the market or the state. So... Um, I think this pause button gives us a chance to think about, well, when we come out of this, how do we reshape our society around the ability to recognise and appreciate um, the common values um, 
of, of wildlife in the environment. I guess one of the ways, one of the things that needs to be borne in mind when we um, when we're talking about the um, the ambition the ambition for a different way of doing things is that there's going to be um, a potentially uh, such a huge degree of um, of, of economic and um, and social disruption um that that people are, that there's going to be um an um a pressure coming from um from uh from the other side to say let's get back to where we were as soon as possible treating these things as like to haves not need not need to haves what's what 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 form of words what language should we um do you think we should be starting to think about preparing for ourselves when we when out when our conversations um meet, uh, interesting. meet. I mean, the new normal how's that how's that going to be what's that looking like what if we again if we look around us at the moment what what are the nice to haves and what are the uh, you know uh, essentials have reversed I mean, the, uh, we, we used to be told that the environment is just a nice to have. It's a green backlog. Meanwhile, there's really important things like the economy. Well, that's kind of gone the other way around now. And I think actually it's not a matter of, um, well, we've got the environment, we can't have the environment, the economy, or we've got the economy, therefore we can't have the environment. The new normal must bring these things together. Um, an economy which actually doesn't value the environment in the future is not an economy at all. Delivering economic growth, which damages the environment, it's not economic growth. We need to bring these things back together. It's not a matter of uh, of uh, saying, no, nobody can have a job anymore because it's all too damaging. Um, it's a matter of changing our economy so that the, uh, the work that we do is regenerative, not exploitative. So how, does the, how, do, how, do the, how does that work in practice? How does it mean that the jobs we do are actually adding to the environment, not taking from it? Uh, we've lost the chance now to just simply exploit and take um, anything we do now must, must build and improve. Now that's not impossible. There are loads of jobs that do that, loads of places, loads of people. Farming, forestry, all of those sorts of things done well, that can be regenerative, not exploitative. And there are many other businesses that are the same. So it's not a matter of saying, no, human intervention is all too damaging, we must stop it and therefore be employed for the, unemployed for the rest of our lives. No, it, it, it's different. And I think that could be the danger. If we come out of this with a sort of message of uh, the economy is damaging, uh, the environment is good, therefore you must balance one against the other, and we'll be back to just where we started. It's got to be a different sort of approach. And and there are plenty of models on how to do that. A, a good template for um, for communicating that kind of message has been the um, the ongoing reassertion every, every day on every news broadcast and every government um, broad uh, you know broadcast in the evenings about how it's um, it's meaningless to separate um, health from the um, from the economy that, that 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 without one we don't have the um, the other it's framed in terms of going back too quickly isn't it um, if we if we release the um, the shutdown too quickly then the economy will be back in the um, back in the deep freeze or back in in a perilous situation and i do wonder if if that's not um if we couldn't substitute health for um for the natural world um in, in those yeah or the other way around as well and so you, you can't separate health from the environment you know, you've got to have a healthy environment otherwise you don't have healthy people and i think the thing we need to bear in mind when it comes to this pan this epidemic uh this pandemic is that actually it was a uh, it, it came from the natural world through one method or another it crossed the species barrier from wild animals to humans. Um, and that's been a big problem for a couple of decades now at least. Some epidemiologists are telling us that we've had 20 years of near misses when it comes to pandemics. And even this one is perhaps a near miss. Uh, we're forcing nature into its last little corners and in, in the process forcing unnatural links between humans and the natural world. 
for the, the, the ability to cross the species barrier is a real problem. Pandemics are possibly um, a big sign of, of how ecosystem destruction is going to impact on, on, on the human race. So again, health and the natural world are far more intimately linked than uh, people sometimes like to think. Yeah, the trifecta. Um, Tony, we're coming towards the end of the um, of the of the time for this week's um, this week's podcast. Very grateful indeed for you um, for you taking an hour out of your um, out of your day. I wonder bef- before we start to um, before we wrap up, if I could um, if I could pose to you the um, the um, the questions that I pose to um, to all my guests. So three good things. The first of which um, a um, a book or a podcast that you've um, that you've that you've loved that you think people should know about. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's always the last interesting book that you read, isn't it? But but I've, I've just read a book called Sapiens by a guy called um, Harari, um, a brief history of humankind, which I, I think um, uh, it's a it's a fascinating book. You know, uh, it, it, it's quite clunky. It's quite a lot there, but he writes in such a good way, and it's all about um, the history of Homo sapiens from very early on right up to the present day, but taken from a very different frame. Uh, for example, he says the biggest con we ever did to ourselves was agriculture. So I'll leave that based with you. So that book, Sapiens by Harari, um, I found was, was absolutely fascinating. One person or um, or social media channel that yes, you get fun uh, Yeah, that's, it. that's an interesting one. I mean, I could, could say all sorts of people. Uh, but one, one person that kind of always winds me up nicely is George Monbiot. Yeah, I don't always agree with everything he says, uh, but that's part of the point, really. Um, He's he's really good in in terms of uh, of kind of winding people up, moving the discussion on. Even if even if I disagree with him, it he certainly makes you think, and he challenges everybody. So, so, yeah, George Monbiot, and I follow him on social media. Always worth a look. So, yeah. Could I take a minute to ask one, like, what, like, uh, for an example of what you may not have agreed with? Um, with um, on rewilding, for example, um, I think he was absolutely brilliant in getting rewilding into public consciousness. Many of us have tried, and many of us have, have failed for decades. He brought it into public consciousness. Where I disagree with him, however, I think he focuses far too much on the on a dense forest um, kind of equivalent to what rewilding might be. I think he loses complexity in understanding rewilding but hey you know we're all in the discussion i think that's a minor a minor distraction from the fact that he really put rewilding into the public consciousness that's in it's an interesting um feature isn't it of uh, when you think about um good um science or policy communication that there's a simplicity of an early message to um to breach the um to breach the hull of the uh, of the tanker of, of um, receive of received wisdom, yeah, and then yeah. um, and then I mean there may be other things can um, can can come in afterwards. There was a discussion for another day in another another podcast um, guest perhaps, but the um, the question of the um, the Michael Moore documentary that he brought out on um, on, on on Earth Day, deeply deeply provocative. Um, uh, but 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 potentially bringing in the um, some people have argued the opportunity to clean house for the um, for the renewable industries. So finally, then your favourite place in nature uh, and why? Uh, interesting. Yes, I've got, I could choose all sorts of places, I suppose. But the, the ones I'm going to go for are actually a couple of our uh, of the Sussex Wildlife Trust's uh, nature reserves, um, which I've just always found very inspirational to go to. Um, I always put the two of them together because they represent a bit of what I've been talking about. 
Uh, one of them is the Men's Nature Reserve, which is uh, um, near Woodsborough Green in Sussex. And if you go there, it's a dense forest equivalent of, of a rewilded site. So it's a very dense woodland. It hasn't been managed for a very long time, forming its own structure. So it's, it is a kind of wild place. It's at the dense forest end of the spectrum. So if you juxtapose that with just down the road uh, is a place called Ebono Common, which again is a kind of rewilded place, um, but much more open. Uh, it's the open variety, which is, has got grazing animals within it. So those two places together, very close together in terms of, you know, physically, they're, they're just down the road from each other, and against the background of understanding rewilding. And actually, both of those sites are quite small. So you have to think about how does that work in a small site. Um, I, I always find them fascinating in terms of just trying to understand nature, natural processes, different views of rewilding. So, yeah, the men and Ebono Common, Sussex, Sussex Wildlife Trust Nature Reserves. Tony, thank you for taking some time out of your morning to um, to, to to discuss the, your talks and, um, and 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 your career. Indeed, um, it's been it's been great, really insightful, and um, and I look forward to um, look forward to catching up with you uh, on the other side of the um, of these curious times. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.